Hello and welcome to another edition of Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things. Um, this is a conversation with um, a, a guy I met, it must be, you know, it must be nearly 30 years ago now, a guy called Jonathan Smales. I'm not going to tell you his story, he tells you his story um, in, within the podcast, but he is a, um, a really interesting really interesting brain, um, a, a leader in, in sustainability, uh, a leader in kind of urban design and planning, uh, a thoroughly good egg. And um, we, we've, he's, he's done some, some quite audacious things, actually. Um, and we get as far as we've, we do about an hour here and we're only about halfway through our journey, really. So we're going to do a second one. But we get as far as when and Jonathan wanted to set up um the Earth Centre, which is like an environmental visitor attraction, sort of 30 years ahead of its time, in the Dern Valley in um, in South Yorkshire, and that's where he and I met. But we we share we share a history before that um, via friends. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. There's another one to come. Cheers. So let's go for levels. That's okay. Right. So there are no rules. The way it works is we talk, you um, get sent a copy of it. I, had, I put a front and a back on it. Yeah. I then send you a copy of it. Anything you don't like, we take out. If you decide you don't want to, you don't like any of it, then we don't, we don't put it out. It's, you have ultimate control over it. And I don't ask anything tricky anyway. No, no, no. Um, well, actually, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. But I don't mean to. Sometimes you do what? Ask a tricky question. Ask no, you should ask a tricky question. So. So um, we'll start. I'll start off just by saying, "Tell me about yourself," and then we go from there. So yeah, you can okay. set the tone at the beginning. Um, so it's a barely spring day in June at the end of the rains, biblical rains, appropriately enough, because we're sat in the chapel at the house of St Barnabas, and I'm sat with Jonathan Smales, who I've known for over twenty years. Um, Jonathan, tell me about yourself. Hi. It is more than 20 years. I think it's probably nearly 30 years, actually. And um, I'm, a, I'm a Yorkshire boy. Uh, mining roots. Um, got into green issues through growing up in this um, damaged suburban coal mining area south of Leeds. It wasn't sort of you know, bouncing around happily in a, in a wood, you know, looking at wildflowers and the joys of nature. For me, it was a sort of intellectual thing at, at university, just starting to look around, read, think, connect that to my background and thought, one, there has to be a better way, environmentally, socially, economically, the mining industry in some ways supported strong communities, but look at the damage it did to the people and to the wider environment. There's got to be a different way. Um, joined the Green Party, it was then called the Ecology Party, so this is ancient history. Yeah, I remember that time. Yeah. And, um, and it was a bunch of um, amusing, not always intentionally <laughs> well-meaning people, some of whom were eco-fascists, you know, a lot of the conversations were about how to reduce the world's population and you felt the draft a little bit at that point yeah there was a sort of genocidal component to it but at the time it was there were the sort of sexy German greens who just were were really kicking it in in Germany and I remember Petra Kelly and Rudolf Barrow and it all just seemed nice and anarchic and 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 I really got into that and so connecting the sort of Sounds terribly dull and sterile, but you know, reading the books at university, Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, I was a sort of Marxist and green, but a bit shy, a bit introverted. And then seeing these sexy German greens smashing it, and that, that was that was. That's, I'm not answering your question, Emma. Tell me, tell me about yourself. I've already got into sort of. There you are. Though. No, I love this. Don't and, stop. Um, that was my, my route through and um, 
But I never realised you could do this stuff for a living. I'm not from any sort of entrepreneurial background. I was the second in our family to go to university. It was, you know, it was like a, you know, we didn't go skiing and any. It was. I'd never met anyone from public school until I went to university. I didn't even know what it was, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, the idea that you could connect your passions and things that you're interested in with your with, your, with work. No one, had, no one had helped me see that. What did Dad do? He was a packaging engineer. What did Mum do? Um, she worked in fashion. She was a, She used to manage Jaeger in Leeds. Eventually, she was a sort of working class girl. Left school at fourteen. Became uh, an, uh, an arch snob, and <laughs> rather wonderfully to survive in this world of Leeds fashion. Uh, what what era was this? Eighties, no, early nineties. No, 90s? no, no. Um, so. I was born in 1959, so in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, we were really conscious that our mum, she was quite grand, very tall, very elegant woman, and she had these quite senior positions in fashion shops and department store, Matthias Robinson in Leeds. Yeah, I remember. Well, I don't remember uh, it. I know of it. Yeah. yeah. You know, we met all the Leeds United footballers, Jack Charles. She was always, like, taking us over and introducing them. And... and um, Clearly, I've got airs and graces now, and that's where I get them from, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. What a bohemian... Look, I, I moved to Bradford in 88, mm. um, and I remember Leeds being in a worse state than Bradford was yeah. at that point, not yeah. any longer. Yeah. To, to, have, to have been that... I'm going to use the word boho. It might not be right, because I'd never make me mum, but to, to be that forward-thinking, fashion-wise, in a city that wasn't always... Mm must have been quite hard. And which was the village you lived in? Whereabouts did you live? We lived in, a, she grew up in Rothwell, south of Leeds. I know Rothwell. And we lived in um, a little village next to that called Alton, yeah. Alton Woodlesford. We were seen as posh, right? Um, which was astonishing to us. But everyone else lived in a council house. Um, we got a Cortina with a white vinyl roof at one point. We lived in a new semi-detached house. What colour was the Cortina's paintwork? It was um, it was bright green, almost lime, with a white vinyl roof. It wasn't a new one, but fuck, we were happy when that, that pulled that's up the That's the coolest growth. colour combo I've heard of. Ours was white with a black vinyl roof. Yeah. And a go-faster stripe that crossed over at the back end of it. I've never seen a green with a white vinyl roof combination in a Cortina. Yeah, we thought it was like Starsky and Hutch time when my dad turned out. He was a packaging engineer. He wasn't a show-off guy at all. No, no. He was very modest, but we were so happy when that car pulled up in the drive. And, and so you had this, it was the era of uh, discovering materialism, you know, yeah. everyone wanted a washing machine. We didn't have a TV until we were like 11. Um, a little black and white one. I remember watching the World Cup final, England and, and Germany yeah. back in '66, and and they were trying to replace that brutal background in, in coal mining and the sort of difficult circumstances we all grew up in with with consumer goods, and um, and it was really exciting. But even as a child, I remember noticing it how. It, it just ultimately could never be fulfilling. It seems It seems like maybe I'm just justifying that, looking back, like post-hoc rationalisation. Sure. But I remember thinking at the time, I, was, I remember thinking, there's got to be more to life than this, but not knowing what it was. Sure. Um, but that whole, I mean, you've just described where we are now for lots and lots of people, whereas where we were then for, 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 for fewer. Um, like shopping as an antidepressant is a phrase I use a lot now. Shopping as a way of economic growth was, was we were still on a post-war footing. Yeah. Arguably, we still are on a post-war footing in terms of consumption. Consuming our way out of these troubles is really interesting. And then when you layer over that um, elements of self-worth and ego is too strong a word, but self-identification through what we have, the, the Cortina. When my dad bought an Alpha Sud, I thought I was the coolest kid in the village. And then he got the BMW 518. I couldn't believe how cool I was. And then he stopped his job and set up on his own. Mm. And he had, to, he had to get rid of that. And we had a, we had a green Allegro with a brown vinyl roof. <laughs> and we were the laughing stock of the village. Mm. Nothing, nothing had changed. Mm. But everything had changed. Mm. So you paint a picture 
It's, it's, it's utterly charming, actually, of this post-war, post-ration economic prosperity and the avant-gardeness of you, both your parents. I can feel, I can't believe there were many people in and around Rothwell with a car like that. <laughs> Listen, I don't think avant-garde is an interesting word to think about Joyce and Trevor, I must say. But <laughs> if, they were, if they were here, I think that they... Um, they spent a lot of their teenage years in the cinema watching glamorous film stars smoke and, you know, wearing the right gowns and stuff. And I think, I think it was very alluring that, that you know, that, that Hollywood image blended with the, this new world that was opening up of consumerism. And they would never, it would never have been called that in those days. No. But I remember there was a, at university there was a book called The Homeless Mind by a sociologist called John Berger, not the, not the art writer John Berger. And he said that, um, so you arrive in, a, in a, a rainforest in Papua New Guinea and you're wearing a watch and carrying an MP3 player. And just the, 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 the signals that that sends, one, what are you doing there? How did you get there? How come you're not having to hunt, farm, build um, to, 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 to stay alive? Two, what is that thing on your on your wrist? The whole concept of time and managing time. And three, this technology that plays music, music that I've never heard before. Just the power of those symbols, and and in a in a in a much more lightweight way. That's what we grew up with. Was these this this new kit arriving, often from America and Japan, yeah. and everyone was really seduced by it. And 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 for us, I suspect. I mean, you're, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, Mark, but for us, fashion and music was a bit like that. We identified in a different way. For us, we just wanted to, to, to be different. We were different, and we expressed that through, for me, it was punk and Springsteen, and, which was not necessarily a natural combination. And, and then but orange it kind hair of is, and interestingly. Yeah, well, we can come on to that in a minute. Yeah. So, um, and, and then, so there's always a sense of being an outsider to this place from in terms of where you grew up, knowing, knowing there's this whole world out there where people had different lives, but also that it just wasn't working in some way. To that, um, the, the, this march, materialistic march to consumerism wasn't fulfilling. Three, that the mining communities at least had community. You know, mm. When we say mining communities, it's not an accident. They really did. Yeah. And, and so you take away the industry, and then what was left were, were the, 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 the kinship between the people. Uh, and how do you replace that in a materialistic world? What's the, what's the new community? And then meanwhile, there we were, um, self-actualizing through fashion and music in the way that they did, albeit it was a slightly less... Material, we were richer than they were, but sure. it was less materialistic in, in some sense. And, and it's because I, li I live in a mining community now. I live in um, northwest Leicestershire, um, Donisthorpe, which is a, uh, the record for the most coal taken out of one pit in any day in the UK. No, you, no one ever thinks of Leicestershire as a mining county. Yeah. I drive around, and when, and when you're at the Earth Centre, which I'm sure we'll come to in a minute, driving around Mexborough, um, I recognise those landscapes. Mm. They're, they're where I live, mm. and I recognise that sense of community. And sometimes mm. you're outside of that community, and that feels uncomfortable. Mm. As, an, as an incomer, it feels uncomfortable. Mm. As a as a as a as a someone who wants to remain, not leave Europe, I'm an outsider as well. That feels uncomfortable. However, even what what are we now? Thirty years since the pit closed, ish. The the connections between people on my road are still really, really strong. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they'll, they'll, they'll die before, the, before they get broken. Mm -hmm. It's really, mm -hmm. really interesting. Mm -hmm. I look, I've got this in image of, of, of you with orange hair. I sat in the back of the Cortina. You were the middle of three, three brothers? Uh, youngest. Youngest. So your elder brothers led your musical discovery. Actually true. Um, particularly, uh, my parents moved to Lincolnshire when I was 15. My dad got a job in, uh, in Findus, working on packaging the glamour, crispy pancakes for Findus. Our diet wasn't brilliant, it has to be said. Yeah, but they were... <laughs> I talk about them a lot in my talks, particularly the beef and onion ones, 
which yeah. I'm not I'm not convinced what was in there. No, but they tasted uh, incredible. Yeah, well, I've seen it, and uh, yeah, I would. Uh, I've tried to put all those images and those those tastes out of my out of my mind. So, and and, and Simon, our eldest brother, stayed behind and lived with our grandma in, in this mining community, and um, and. I don't know, his musical taste was a lot more sophisticated than ours. So he was Steely Dan, yeah. Springsteen, Born to Run, yeah. um, Exploded. It was an amazing time in music, actually. Yeah, and, and very diverse, albeit there were only, you go to the record shop, there were only about 40 LPs. I don't know if you That's remember, that, that was the universe. And, and uh, you know, if a new Led Zeppelin was coming out, or a, a new Steely Dan, or a Little Feet, You'd, you'd like queue up. You queue, yeah. Literally queue up, so and you'd listen to it for the next three weeks. Well, th that's what I loved about it. I loved when. Okay, so my. It, well, obviously, my, we're not going to talk about sustainability. Let's just talk about no, this. It's we'll, much we'll, more interesting. We'll, we'll talk about both because they got. I want, I want to go back to rebellion in a minute, which is which is a re rooted in the heart of everything. But I remember buying soft sound non-stop erotic cabaret. So I'm a little later than you, yeah. uh, ten years, ten years younger-ish, nine years younger, and. Um, I remember number one, my parents being utterly shocked by the the blat blatant Soho pornography the images on the front, just just the, the fl flickering neon lights. But I remember playing it so many times that even after a week, I knew every single word, mm. every single mm. breath. Mm. I could I could hear David Bull shifting when he was playing mm -hmm. keyboard, and obviously they met in Leeds, and there's a northern grittiness to mm. to, to soft cell, mm -hmm. as well as a southern grittiness. Mm. I, I like it for that. Mm. Now we skip and flick, and I'm not knocking the modern no, no, we do, at do, all. Yeah. But yeah. We don't embed ourselves so deeply in the music, and I, I think that's a bit sad in many ways. But but we discover more music. So yeah, I mean I love it now actually, and and again you know there's in the back of my mind there's a thought like grass of it, but yeah, not really. I mean I've just the last ten years I've discovered techno and trance and. It's like I can't imagine anything better. Yeah. Uh, actually, I think when you're in a, a dark club and they've got an amazing sound system and no one cares and you're just dancing to that music, it's probably that's my happy place. Well, actually, it's, it's meditation. Not, not that it happens very often. It is a form of meditation. It's extraordinary um, depth of of light consciousness so that's an awful phrase that's a shit phrase edit that mark but all i mean is that it's very it's the bearable lightness of being oh that's a lovely melancholy there um it's really interesting i've got this image of you dancing in a way that's oblivious to what else is going on and i love that idea that no one really cares how you dance because when we grew up it, re it really mattered it how you danced. Deal, yeah. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. would laugh at you, yeah. Kind, yeah. like hard, yeah. and it was and it was uncomfortable. But you said earlier, um, the strange bedfellows um, were, um, were were punk and mm. Springsteen. At their and then you created yourself. At their core, they were about rebellion. Springsteen mm. is not about. Sp Springsteen is a folk singer who is rejecting norms. Mm. Punk was not folk, but it was about rejecting norms. Mm. I see more parallels than differences. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. It was a bit of a ill thought through idea when it came out of my mouth. Uh, I think um, punk was interesting, right? We we were. I was in Lincolnshire in this quite well-to-do rural town, and punk was happening in Camden. Um, but we had the Cleethorpes Winter Gardens just like 10 miles north of us and that's where we used to go and we saw The Clash, Eddie and the Hot Rods, never saw it at The Damned, um, the Buzzcocks, what a time. Amazing. What a time. I was too and, young for all this. Yeah, and it, you know, and, and, and actually I don't think I ever, I listen to The Buzzcocks a bit, I don't, The Clash sometimes at a party, but I never really listened to it, but at the time it was just the most exciting thing you could yeah. imagine. We read about it in The Enemy on a Thursday morning in the sixth form common room and every other weekend we'd be at the, the Winter Gardens and there they were, and they were there in Cleethorpes. Ridiculous, right? I just That's think the power it's of music. It's, it's like a Wigan Casino or something, but, but the, that was the, the Cleethorpes punk scene. How about that? And did you have a tight-knit group of people who shared this with you? No, there, were, there was probably two or three of us, actually. I think um, there were almost like fights at school about music. It was so pathetic in that sense. Yeah. You know, you have your, 
you had your sort of Bowie, Roxy Music crowd who were much cooler than us. True, actually, they were. And I didn't get Bowie or, or Roxy Music. I do now yeah. a lot. Um, but um, we, we were West Coast and punk, weirdly. So we were, yeah, Little Feet, Steely Dan. I love it. Linda Ronstadt, even, you know. Um, and not really Grateful Dead. I was a bit too old for that. But then rediscovering the Neil Young I love. Yeah. Today, even today. Um, love all that stuff. Um, but you blend it with trance and techno. Well, do you have any grime? Much later. No, no not really. I'm not. English music doesn't really do it for me somehow. I don't know why. I think it's probably because my kids are into it. <laughs> and it's theirs. It's like, this is theirs. They're starting to get into techno much more. So you, you're giving them the space to be different rather than them pulling away from you. Well, it may also be that I don't like it. I don't, I don't know enough about it, actually. Yeah. I think... Um, I think it's true to say in, in, in any walk of life that you can smell authenticity quite quickly. So if, if, if the grime music that they're listening to is authentic, I think yeah. I probably yeah, might not love it, but you'll get it. But hopefully would, would guess it. So that's brilliant. Thank you. And that was almost a scratch and sniff window into um, early punk and your childhood. And I really, really like that. Tell me about university then. So, so I've met your brother, one brother, Lindsay. I've not met the other brother. Mm. Number one, growing up with a brother called Lindsay must have been tough for him <laughs> and you. But I think it was um, tougher for him than it was for me. He went to the comprehensive school, which was like a sort of borstal. Um, and, and, you know, and he was beaten up quite a lot. And it was very but difficult. He's, but you're both he's a, yeah, very tall. I'm, I'm the smallest in our family. He's, yeah. he's a big lad. The, the other one's bigger. And... Um, but it was a very tough area. It was, yeah. it was a tough old area. And as I said to you, we were, we were regarded as posh because we lived in a nice, semi-detached nice. house in a sort of cul-de-sac. I mean, I would never design anything like that now. <laughs> of course, darling. But <laughs> that's where we were. So. We'll come on to housing design in a minute because I've lived in all types of houses and, I'm, I'm, and I used to be really clear what I loved and I'm, le I'm less clear now. Yeah. Why did your parents call him Lindsay? Yeah, I don't think I ever, ever asked them. They're still alive, your parents? Uh, no, they both died parents. of lung cancer. They smoked all their lives. Partly because of these Hollywood films <laughs> in, the, in the 50s. No, not partly. Entirely because of this. It was a cool thing to do. That was, was a bit of rebellion for them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> do you know? Why don't I know that? I don't know that. I mean, a Jonathan, not exactly a, you know, everyday name in my, in my peer group yeah. either. That was a little bit gay to use the word that um, we used at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I remember my uh, dad lining us up in the kitchen, three lads, and we were all pretty much bigger than him. He was a big, big man too, but he said, if any of you boys are gay, no, he said, if any of you boys are puffs, I'll never speak to you again. And I remember saying to Simon afterwards, it's like, what's a puff, Simon? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, was, it wasn't, you know, it was just a different era. It wasn't it? It was a different era. So, so the step from there, where did you go to university? I went to Newcastle. So the step from there to Newcastle, well, you were the second person in your family to go to university yeah, yeah. after... Actually, Simon went to, to Newcastle. Uh, did you go there because he went there? I safe? went there... I was thinking about Oxford, but I was already getting a little bit politically woke and thought, fuck it, no, if I go there, I'm just going to be angry all the time and um, and then I went to Durham and that was worse um, for an interview and I went to Sheffield and I was drunk when I went to Sheffield I just bought Chicken Skin Music by Ray Kuda that album. morning great album and I was with my best mate and we both got completely drunk six pints of Tetley's I remember <laughs> and went into the interview and I just looked at this guy and he was looking at me and um what he said or what I said, but they made me an offer, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, really, maybe I said something really quite insightful and magical, I don't know, but I can't remember. Totally so all that was left was Newcastle then at that point, so it was by default, but love the city, didn't really love being at university, actually. But it's cold as well, isn't it? It was where we lived. I mean, we lived in, the, um, in, in a place that was incredibly damp and... We used to sit and do our thing in the evening around a three-bar electric fire. 
and we were broke, you know. We, um, even though we worked in the summer holidays and, and uh, when we weren't at university, we, we worked in shops and, you know, Findus, I worked in Findus as yeah. a toilet cleaner. I worked in Bradford as a steel erector. I mean, great jobs, actually. Amazing yeah, yeah. character-building stuff to get by. But, you know, I think um, we forget Britain's a lot richer than it, than it was then. I, a I, lot richer. I was thinking about this only this morning on the train when I was ruminating about a guy I knew who wouldn't buy toilet paper at university. He just used his hand. Mm. And he used his hand because he was saving money. And I remember being broke. But I didn't have any... I didn't have a loan. I didn't have any debt. I didn't no, have I didn't either. Everything yeah, stacked up against yeah, me. But I had less, I had less money to spend on a daily basis. Yeah. That's because I didn't borrow any. Yeah. And and I and I remember. I mean, I went to university in Bradford. We share, we share a geography, and um, utterly loved the damp and the misery and the permanently being ill and listening to the wedding <laughs> present and could, um, yeah. and and thinking. And then obviously the mighty stone roses appeared and saved us all. Um, I remember Let's just talk about music almost and popular culture. We, we no, could, seriously, we should do, could, we could do a little series well, that, and, of and middle-aged and, podcasts. And we should do that. We should do that. Like, <laughs> what I'm listening to this week. But there's a C here as well. So I'll, I'll always remember <clears throat> at that period, the, eight, the late 80s, mm. the Green Party be, be, was now called the Green Party. Yes. Yeah. Um, my teacher at school was in the Ecology Party, Mr. Yeah. Fuster, and he had a beard and he, he, he was archetypal... And we all laughed yeah, at it. Obligatory in yeah. those days. Yeah. Three years later, it had changed names. Yeah. I was voting for it in the local elections. Mm. Tipex Ozone Destroyers was the headline on the Express or the Mail, one of the, the mm. weaker papers. And, and everything had changed. And this was your time. It was. Um, so, 1986, I answered an ad for director of Greenpeace like managing director of Greenpeace and I was just about to go and do VSO, I'd been a fast dream civil servant and was bored out of my mind, worked in the health service thinking it was about health naively, <laughs> it isn't about health as it turns it's out, it's about managing hospitals badly yeah. and, um, and I thought fuck this, I'm not, it's just too dull, I'm not doing it what is, is this what it is and, um, and in my spare time, I wrote the uh, Ecology Party manifesto for the Hammersmith and Fulham elections. And it turned out to be a critique of the council that I was working for at that time. And they weren't very happy, as you can imagine. So I thought, I'm just off. I'm, I'm going to Africa or something, you know, whatever. And then I saw this ad and I thought, well, hang on a minute. I don't really like Greenpeace. They're single issue environmentalists. I'm, I'm not. I never have been a, an environmentalist. I was a bit sort of condescending about them yeah. in a way. Um, but I thought, mm, maybe, maybe you can work with these ideas. Maybe it isn't just something that you campaign about or that you um, read about or, what, or, you know, or, or see the Green Party on TV or whatever in Germany winning. Maybe actually we could do that over here. So I answered that not really knowing what I was getting into. And um, met Peter Melcher. Yeah. Uh, a guy called Alan Thornton and an American businessman called Steve Warshaw who had been involved in the, the liberalisation of drugs movement in this country together with Peter. Alan was one of the original Greenpeace campaigners from Canada. Fierce guy. And I thought, fuck, these guys are serious. They were like super hard, clear, um, determined, able. You could feel the... The, the agency in the room and I suddenly woke up and I thought I'd like to do this even though I knew I wasn't an environmentalist I thought sure. I want to I want to experience this so so in a way the applied engagement as opposed to flirting with it really began that morning of the interview I've been um, we'd all done CND marches which was huge in those days yeah. rock against yeah. racism was a big thing for me yeah. mostly I think because of the music yeah. Uh, actually, they ran amazing gigs. We d don't seem to do that anymore. No. In quite the same way. But, you know, it was uh, so. And all the best looking women were, were involved in all that stuff as well. So always all, a, all always a together, draw. Yeah. yeah. Always a draw. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then this. That was a key moment in my life, I guess, that, that interview that one day. It, 
it, it's a big leap from where you were. It took, mm. that must have taken some brave, well, it, bravery, or actually you just didn't give, give a shit. I just, I think I was a bit desperate on the one hand, and I didn't really know what I was getting into. I didn't really know the history of Greenpeace. And I just arrived on my first day. I was 26. Did you did that at all between offering and no, taking? No, I was very excited when they offered it, because I'd felt that um, seriousness in the room. I felt that I was about to connect with something that was going to change my life um, in, in a really, really good way. And I wasn't listening to anything else at this point. And then I started talking to some... I remember I was at a party, and um, this very lovely Oxford family, very liberal, middle-class, bourgeois Oxford family, the kind of people that you... Uh, I'd never met before, but that were suddenly my peer group. And I was talking to the dad in his lovely Oxford house, and he said, uh, Greenpeace, you're what? You're going to be a director of Greenpeace? And I was like, yeah. He said, well, how have you done that? And I was like, well, I just had an interview. He said, do you know what Greenpeace is, really? And I was like, no, I'm not sure I do. And he was just amazed, you know, really, really enamoured and excited. And I, and I suddenly realised maybe it was going to be a big and exciting thing. The, the biggest and the most exciting thing of the time, I suspect. Well, yeah, you, you, I, think, I think latterly um, one can look back and, and say that, but I think this was 1986, so um, Chernobyl had just happened. Yeah. The Rainbow Warrior had been sunk the previous year. But Greenpeace UK was 12 people in the corner of a wood warehouse in Islington. And I arrived, and no one had counted how much money we'd got in the bank, how many supporters we had. I think there were probably three people in the, in the corner of the wood warehouse that morning when I arrived. I didn't have a desk, I had to be lowered in to this kind of funny little triangular space. With a, with a wooden plank held up by some bricks. You know, you, for, for, for something that had done what it had done and had the reputation that it had, it wasn't very impressive in, in Britain. Sure. And they just had a, it was a sort of coup, coup uh, d'etat where the previous directors had been, had been eked out by Greenpeace International for starting a fur campaign and just running it as a sort of fiefdom. And, um, and, and then Peter Melchett was, was brought in, having been a minister in the Labour government. He was, a, he was an altogether different type heavyweight um, from a very political family, um, Lander, Gentry, Eton, Cambridge, but very sounds radical. Like, yeah, yeah. It sounds like uh, the good actually. version of the guy on the, tw in the, on the, the tweed, on the train. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's that generation, still is. Jonathan Porritt, Peter Melchett, um, Chris Bintical, Yeah, you know. Yeah, from from these incredible families that, that were were the leaders at that time, and, and in some ways, you know, Jonathan still is, I yeah. think, and, and and arguably brave, arguably really, really brave. Yeah. Path of least resistance did, would not have taken them to where they are now; it would have taken them in a completely different direction. Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, so it was it was a great time to join because there'd been this big shift. And, and whenever that happens, or often when that happens, there's a fantastic opportunity to... Yeah. to and it was a strong brand, um, still. And it just felt that we had this opportunity. So the next five years were just astonishing. It was astonishing. It was like... Um, you know, I was hiring like two people a week That's for amazing. four years. I mean, it just went on like that. It was just ridiculous. and. In 1987, we were getting 3,000 new supporters a week. I, I, it's 3,000, imagine. I, I joined in 70... Probably 77, 76, for a school project, and, and, never, and never left until... Well, I've left now, actually, yeah, weirdly. Yeah. Um, but I remember just being the only person who'd ever heard of you to being everyone had heard, had heard yeah. of you. And at that time, so in about 90... 1991, 92, I was working with three people, all of which have worked, were working with you. Jim mm -hmm. Sweet, who I think did IT, mm -hmm. Anna Brinley, and Andy Rowell, who were, right, yeah. Andy was, was a, an author and mm -hmm. lots of other things. I love him to pieces, he drives me mad. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and I remember it being like the coolest place to be. Mm -hmm. I remember going into the offices yeah. at about that yeah. time and just thinking, this is what I want. Yeah. I, I want this. Yeah. But within five years, I didn't want this. Mm. It had changed and become a little risk averse after you'd left. Well, well um, 
I think I'm often um, associated with that in a sense, which I, I kind of reject wholeheartedly because I think that when I arrived, there were all these burnt out people. Yeah. They were sleeping on one another's floors. They didn't have any money at all. The campaigns were half-baked. They didn't have the resources. They weren't thought through. The science wasn't clear. We didn't have a political strategy. We didn't have a comms strategy. Um, we were we had this amazing brand. I think we didn't call it that, but we knew we had an aura, right? The boats, the actions, the non-violence, the internationalism, amazing things to have. Yeah. Um, it was swashbucklingly brave. But when we weren't using it, right? We were using it occasionally. But I remember early on going to... I met David McTaggart in Lewis, actually, where I now live. It was, the, it was my first international trustee meeting. And Peter Melcher, I'd been in Greenpeace for two weeks, and I was at this... And he, he had to go home for some sort of parent-teachers meeting. Even, even Greenpeace chairman have to go to parent-teachers meeting. And there I was, you know, 26, suddenly the trustee, an international trustee on the board of Greenpeace International, effectively. And sitting there, and we were debating Antarctica, and David McTaggart, a great man, he was a guy that sailed in his yacht into the middle of Pacific nuclear testing, the French exploding nuclear bombs around the Bikini Atoll. He sailed right into the middle of it, got beaten up, nearly lost an eye, managed to sneak a roll of film out and made it world news. Um, and he, he was the sort of godfather of the modern... Greenpeace, this, this burgeoning modern Greenpeace, and he had the fiercest, brightest stare, as kind of intensity, which I really uh, I caught his look across the table. And he really wanted this um, World Park Antarctica, he wanted a base in Antarctica. And so he put together this, I don't know how many millions of dollars proposal it was to the trustee, and it was the vote that night. And I didn't know what Greenpeace UK's policy was on this, because every, every country has like a policy on yeah. it position and there I was on my own I had no idea and it went around the room and I had the casting uh, deciding <laughs> yeah and I was like thinking where is Antarctica exactly is that the one with the penguins or is it polar bears <laughs> <laughs> and McTaggart was fixing me across the table and I voted for it I just thought it was an amazing idea that we because if you have a base you get voting rights in the Antarctic negotiations yeah, right? yeah. World Park Antarctica and I just thought it was like a new frontier, the last great wilderness and all that, listening to the debate. Got back to the office the following day, absolutely not the UK policy. <laughs> <laughs> but it just, that, that um, uh, yeah, and it just, it just took off, right? We got organised. And um, being creative anarchy with, with, a, with a strong foundation of organisational discipline Arguably, you need it in order to be anarchic, I would yeah. say. You can have, you can have a, a cloudburst of anarchy and creativity, but if you want to sustain it internationally and not kill people on actions or damage anything, uh, and then you better be well-organised. And that's what, that was my job, was to make sure that we were well-organised. So things like... But we were doing like an action every month, a major action. And... Um, some of my favourites actually were in the North Sea. There was a, guy, a lad from Dewsbury um, in Leeds called Andy Booth. And he was a real tearaway. Bleach blonde hair, proper northern lad. I don't even remember how he got into Greenpeace. He was there when I arrived, or it was never in the office. He was always out on a boat somewhere. And, and we had this, my boss, the ED, the Canadian guy, didn't last long. Um, really couldn't bear Andy, he was like this, you know, apart from anything else, my boss was a wildlife campaigner and he was trying to turn Greenpeace into a vehicle just for campaigning on wildlife. We were all like nuclear, chemicals, yeah. um, ozone, acid rain, not yet climate change, that came a bit later. Anyway, Andy, I just loved him so much, he was, he was out of it and, and he was in the middle of the North Sea hunting down big ships that were burning toxic chemicals off the coast of Scarborough and Whitby, 50 miles off the beach, burning and then dumping the ash in the sea. So you had these like 50 metre long sewage pipelines that were pumping raw sewage yeah. into the place where we went swimming as kids. And then 50 miles off the coast were these mafia owned 
uh, ocean incineration. Waste treatment facilities. Waste treatment facilities. <laughs> and Andy. Andy was chasing them. This lad from Jewsbury with a bunch it. of volunteers. Where is he now? What's he doing now? He's, he's, he runs um, a big... He, he, um, he's a very successful businessman, I think. He runs a... Uh, international media organisation on environmental filmmaking and, and media. Amazing. I've not kept in touch with him. Uh, occasionally I see him. But I love that he he just used to go off on the ship and, and there was no like plan or programme. But he just used to get amazing publicity. The volunteers on, on our ship used to jump into the water in front of these ships. And it wasn't like, if it's the Navy, the Navy are disciplined and organised and... They, these, were, these were pirates, essentially, these, weren't they? They, 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 It was mafia. Yeah. And, um, so these volunteers were, were jumping in the sea in front of these massive ships coming at them. And, and they had these sort of bulbs on the front of the ship which caused a, a kind of wave to come out like that, which would mean that you were very unlikely to get run over because the wave would throw you apart, yeah. would throw you aside. Uh, I'm not sure that Andy knew that when they first went in there. <laughs> Andy was on deck with a megaphone and he'd be shouting, don't kill our babies, don't kill the volunteers, you murderers. And it's, it's all being, you know, on news at 10 and stuff. I Unbelievable. I Unbelievable it. stuff. But behind that was a disciplined organisation that we knew the law, we got yeah. people out of, out of the police cells quite quickly, we were non-violent. We trained people in non-violence. But without the rigour that you applied, you mm. couldn't have carried on. You couldn't on. have done that. You couldn't have You can do one or two of those, but you can't yeah. run, you know, nine international campaigns in 35 countries. And so the, the problem was that when you lose... I think I was lucky to, to work with some very... So Peter was, was a kind of mentor to me, and, and he was a, a bit like me. He was... He had that sort of organisational discipline. In fact, not, not a bit like me. He was the organisational discipline. I was his like, acolyte, in a yeah. way. Uh, and, and, and that, together, we, we, we held it together, I think, with obviously a whole team of brilliant people that, that, that came in, in order that we could run these extraordinary campaigns. But I, I remember when eventually I left, and I wasn't there very long. What did, what, when did you leave? Um, 1990. Yeah. T uh, my, come on to that perhaps, but um, just walking around the office, and I, I remember thinking there are more camera crews, people involved in camera crews in the office than there are staff at this moment. Maybe 10 or 11 different crews making programmes about something. Um, and, and at that point, and, and, and actually in 1988, front page of Time, Newsweek, The Economist, it was just everywhere. Yeah. And, and the world had definitely shifted on its axis. The modern environmental movement was winning. Well, it, it was born. I mean, the, the, this, the way that I see it, you said a funny thing a minute ago, and I nearly disagreed with you when you said it, but I thought I'd wait to disagree with you, which I'm going to do now, because I'm polite with my disagree with Jonathan. I don't think pe people saw you as, taking, as making Greenpeace more risk-averse. It's what came later. When you were there... That's when it was at its most exciting, its most swashbuckling. That's when it was at its most organised. That, that's when it was at its most successful, in my opinion, in terms of making the change. And that's when the new environmental movement was born. And as an architect of that, you should feel really proud, not regretful that it became less risky. That, that was after oh, you. No, no, I mean, I... Um no false modesty here, I'm incredibly proud. I'm very conscious of what you say, I absolutely believe yeah. that. And I think that what then followed was a, was a period of, of retrenchment and lack of imagination. But it was also slightly victims of our own success. Whether you can sustain that amount of intensity and indeed the relationship that we got with the media where we were very exciting for the media. But then I think it got a bit cynical and we were a bit manipulative of the media. And the media became more and more, I suppose, maybe a bit, it all became a bit jaded. Some of the actions became stunts, which they were never intended to be. Sure. I mean, if it was going to be a stunt, it better be a funny, a witty stunt. There was a brilliant one, incidentally, where um, it was the North Sea Conference, and it was all part of this um, ocean incineration thing. The, 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 the North Sea was very, very contaminated. And there was a big international conference at the Westminster Conference Hall. And um, we decided, and Prince Charles was due to open it, and we decided we were going to blockade Westminster. 
right? And um, I mean, planning these actions was very funny. We used to, because the office was bugged, and I, you know, I'm sure my phone at home was bugged. Yeah. So we used to go and sit on Islington Green on a park bench uh, and plan the, the actions. And of course, the park bench in Islington Green would have been would bugged have been as bugged. well. <laughs> but this is, to, 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 there's lots of things that are worth commenting on here. Number one, it's utterly, nearly unbelievable that you were bugged and an and a MI6 were interested in you. Mm. Number two, I think we forget how bad things were. Mm. Seeing shit floating in Swanage when I was swimming was normal. Mm. Yeah. It was normal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've changed things so much for the better. Yeah. Yeah. The smell of solvent as you drove ramparts of Bradford yeah, and Leeds, yeah. yeah, which absolutely. was famous for printing and packaging, double the national average of concentration of printing and packaging firms. Yeah. And it was all solvent-based inks. Yeah. The glues were dreadful. We've forgotten how far we've come. Yeah, I know. And yet, you know, the, 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 so we come back to, so turning 60 earlier this year, um, I thought one of the things I must do is just like work back through my life and these different episodes of engagement with the green movement and... Um, and, and, and try and make sense of it. See what, what, what you know. What, 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 what did one do? What happened? What, what then happened? What did we learn from it? How did we use that learning? And where are we now? Sort of thing. And, and I, I gave a talk a few weeks ago, and it was partly all preparation for that. I wanted to be there. And um, uh, and, and at the same time, I started reading all the contemporary. There's some astonishingly good. Books out. There's a body of knowledge, but there's also some great writing now, yeah. which is new. That's that's we've never had that before. Sure. In in the sustainability slash green movement, and uh, so you know, reading things like David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth, and Elizabeth Colbert, you know, Six Extinction, um, Charles Massey on uh, you know, Call of the Reed Warbler. You read these astonishing books. And you see, to your point, that although all sorts of things have improved, objectively, globally, through climate change and loss of biodiversity and air pollution, that things are so much worse than we ever imagined they would be. And all the stuff that we were saying in the 80s has come true in spades and is now multiplying exponentially. It's out of control but it's much less visible than it was. You don't swim through turds anymore, no. but you're, you're, it's really interesting. The climate change is utterly terrifying um, as, a, as a mover of people, as a, as a breaker of countries, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, a threat to the way that we live in the very building blocks of our biosystem. But many people don't take it seriously mm. and it drives me fucking nuts. And they'll ask me about stuff that is really totemic and visible and still matters, and they won't look at that stuff at mm. all. Mm. And yet, I take flights around the world to work and feel. Someone called me out on it the other week, actually, and they tried to flight shame me. And um, I, I, I answered in a robust way, i.e., I do it when I do good, and if I don't do good, then I don't Got fly. The, yeah, and sure. it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. But look, we, we've taken so much time here. So we're going to do two. We're going to do two, and I'm going to I'm going to end this with you leaving Greenpeace. Mm. How did you feel? I felt great. I was slightly over it. I think that uh, having been the the kind of MD where I ran stuff, I was thinking having the the, the my ED had gone. There's a story behind that that I won't. It's not. It's an, it would be an indulgence to talk about it, but he left. And um, I thought, maybe I should be the ED. And actually, I'm not really a campaigner. It's kind of interesting. And by then, I was sold completely on sustainability. So yeah. Our Common Future had come out in 1987, yeah. which I loved. Um, and there was this whole debate about sustainability or sustainable development, which I thought was a great debate. And I always had much more in common with Jonathan Porritt. He wasn't a friend then, but I knew him quite well. And um, I was like listening to Jonathan because he went much deeper and had a systemic analysis and indeed a kind of view of um, 
of, of what we might do about all this stuff. Whereas Greenpeace, which I love in a different way, is a is a bearing witness. It's a it's a single issue campaigning organisation that draws attention to these things, but wasn't then taking it further into a into a world view of what we might do. And I was ready for that. So I was ready to leave. You know, I was kind of. Uh, we just had Gabriel, my, my eldest son. Yeah. My wife had, had won a sculpture commission to build Jackie Milburn for Newcastle United. And we moved into a little, a tiny, it was actually called the Little House. It was the smallest house you could imagine in a little wood. And I invented, I started thinking about the Earth Centre. So I was supposed to, well, I, you know, I was, a, I was like a dad for a year, properly had given up work. Um, was on the board of Greenpeace Switzerland and did a bit of consulting for Greenpeace. And we'd done the office, um, but basically it was a year supporting my, my wife to make the sculpture by looking after the little one. And it gave me the space to think about what next, and that was the Earth Centre. Let's hold it there, okay, because the Earth Centre is, was astonishing. And that's a really good place for us to pick up. Coal is still here. Coal has followed you. You were born from it, you were educated through it, and then at the Earth Centre, you went back to it. Yeah. That's utterly fascinating. Yeah. You and JP are, I would say, two of the most philosophical, smartest environmentalists, sustainability practitioners I've ever met. And you need the big flashbang of Greenpeace, you need the protest, you need the noise and the banners and the climate, you need all of that. But if there's no thought behind it, if there's no, it's, if it's philosophy, it's not just politics. If that doesn't sit behind it, it's not enough. Jonathan, brilliant, a gift. Thank you for this it's one. Been, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I'm sorry about the overindulgent stuff. No, no problem. But there we are. And we'll pick up next time. <laughs> wow, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, that's part one. Um, part two's coming up soon. Uh, he's, uh, Jonathan's just incredible just done so much um and carries such authority and gravitas with him uh, really really enjoyable conversation and um he's going to go on to do even greater things so keep your ears peeled for um for episode two coming soon i hope you have a great day hope you enjoyed that um any comments give me an email mark at this is ape.co.uk um thank you